Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A federal judge has blocked a Biden policy that restricts asylum for illegal border crossers because he says it prevents them from finding safe asylum. A possible impeachment inquiry into President Biden. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today clarifying what he meant when he said such an inquiry might be warranted amidst growing allegations of corruption. The Biden administration pushing insurance companies to expand mental health coverage. How that could affect millions of Americans. A potential UPS strike may have been averted. The company and the Teamsters Union reach a tentative deal. And hundreds of internal documents from the Chinese Communist Party leaked online. They detail the military ambitions in the regime's five-year plan. There could be an uptick in illegal border crossings soon after a federal judge today blocked President Biden's asylum policy. Meanwhile, the DOJ has sued Texas for building a barrier to keep migrants out. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. In recent months, the White House has said they've gotten the immigration crisis under control, due in part to new immigration policies. If you think about the parolee program, you think about uh, uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Haiti and Cuba, it's down by more than 97 percent. The program that he's put forth, we see them working. The data shows that. But a California federal judge Tuesday blocked a key rule in the Biden administration's immigration policies. The new rule announced in February was intended to cut down on the number of people illegally crossing the border each month. Under the rule, migrants must first apply online or seek protection in a country they've passed through. The judge said the rule bars migrants from seeking asylum because the other countries don't offer safe options. The judge put the ruling on hold for 14 days, giving the administration time for a possible appeal. In Congress, Representative Matt Gaetz, a Republican, is hoping to end birthright citizenship. Currently, children born in the United States receive automatic citizenship even if their parents are not U.S. nationals. Gates introduced a bill called End Birthright Citizenship Fraud Act of 2023. The bill would amend the Immigration and Nationality Act. In a statement about the bill, Gates said the proposed amendment would reflect the original intent of the 14th Amendment's subject to the jurisdiction thereof clause. The bill states that the original intent was to give citizenship only to those who owed their allegiance to the United States and were subject to its complete jurisdiction. Gates said that birthright citizenship has been misapplied for decades. If passed, the bill would still give citizenship to children of lawfully admitted refugees or permanent residents. The bill comes as the House Judiciary Committee is set to question Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Wednesday. House Republicans have been considering whether or not to impeach Mayorkas. In just over two years under Secretary Mayorkas, more people have entered our country illegally than in the 12 years of the Obama and Trump administrations combined. In June, the House Homeland Security Committee launched an investigation. And last week, the committee published a report alleging that Mayorkas violated his constitutional oath of office. They said he hasn't been able to discharge the duties of the office. Some states are still taking matters into their own hands. 
Texas continues to set up floating barriers on the Rio Grande. The equipment was delivered yesterday on Friday, and this really shows that right now the state of Texas continues to take unprecedented action in the absence of the federal government to secure the border. But there are consequences. The DOJ is suing Texas and Governor Greg Abbott over the border barriers. They say it violates federal law and presents a risk to public safety. Arlene Richards, NTD News. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today explaining what he meant when he said the allegations against President Biden may warrant an impeachment inquiry. The pressure from Republicans on Biden is growing as more corruption allegations are coming to light. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was on Fox News on Monday talking about a possible impeachment inquiry into President Biden. When President Biden was running for office, he told the American public that he's never talked about business. He said his family has never received a dollar from China, which we now proved is not true. Hannity, this Speaker. is rising to the level of impeachment inquiry. While talking to reporters on Tuesday, McCarthy explained the difference between an actual impeachment and impeachment inquiry. It's not impeachment. It allows Congress to investigate by giving Congress the full power to get the information they need. It, it's the way people should go about investigating. McCarthy accuses the FBI of withholding crucial information from the IRS on Biden matters. He also referenced two IRS whistleblowers who allege government prosecutors slow-walked an investigation into Hunter Biden's tax crimes. He says the only way to find out more is by using an impeachment inquiry, which gives Congress the power to properly investigate. The White House on Tuesday commented on McCarthy's remarks. That's for Republicans to decide. I'm not going to weigh in on what they may or may not do, or what, how, they, how House Republicans want to move forward. What I'm going to weigh in is how the president is going to continue to move forward for the American people. Some now say impeachment is near, such as a South Carolina congressman on Tuesday. And I think he's going to continue, and I, I think at the end of the day he will be impeached. Back in May, Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene introduced articles of impeachment against Biden, however, without much support. On Tuesday, Republican Congressman Bob Good said the momentum might be changing with McCarthy talking about this possible impeachment inquiry. When he does uh, speak to those uh, to speak to impeachment, it carries a tremendous amount of weight, evidenced by you the fact the that you asked him about that. Think the ground shifted on that a little bit when he opened up the door on this? I don't think there's any question that him speaking to that uh, has has. A paradigm shift. However, Punchbowl founder Jake Sherman later tweeted this. McCarthy just told me he's not going to start an impeachment inquiry this week. At the end of this week, Congress will go into its annual recess and only return in September. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with constitutional attorney Jenna Ellis about McCarthy's Monday announcement. Ellis is also a former senior advisor and counsel to President Trump. Let's see that now. Jenna Ellis, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. McCarthy has said that there is potentially enough evidence to start an impeachment inquiry against or into the Biden family. From a legal constitutional perspective, with what we know so far, would you agree or disagree with that? I would agree, absolutely. And my only question to Speaker McCarthy is, why did it take him and the new Republican majority this long to begin an impeachment inquiry? With everything that we have seen with uh, the Biden family and Joe Biden's uh, contacts with uh, Burisma, with Ukraine, with uh, how he botched the Afghan 
the Afghan uh, uh, withdrawal and how uh, he has handled some of the immigration issues that have specifically and intentionally, I believe, gone against uh, the Constitution and has, has just brushed off the Supreme Court. All of these things independently provide a legal and constitutional basis for at least an impeachment inquiry. And so for Speaker McCarthy, uh, really to begin that now, it looks a little bit more political now headed into the 2024 election. I think that they should have started this uh, a number of years ago and at least uh, as soon as the Republicans gained the new majority. Yeah, considering the timing of this, how do you think that will impact the, the narrative surrounding this inquiry? Well, it will be a narrative, right? Because, of course, impeachment should never be just an exercise in politicking. It should be constitutionally sound. There should be a legal basis. It's at least a quasi-judicial process because an impeachment has to actually be ratified and put through the House, and then there is a trial in the Senate. So there is that judicial proceeding. However, uh, this is, of course, going to be used by the Democrats to say, well, look, this is just retaliation for the two impeachments of Donald Trump. And so it's going to be very difficult for Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans to navigate that, at least in the court of public opinion. But I think that they need to move forward with this and, uh, and validate their role under the Constitution more than any sort of politicking the Democrats could throw at them. And now looking ahead, both Trump and Biden now have legal problems on their hands, potentially. Uh, so with their run for president, how do you think it will affect the 2024 election? Well, I think, honestly, Americans on both sides, both Democrats and Republicans, are really sick of the weaponization of government against their preferred candidate. And I know that Republicans are very tired of it uh, with Donald Trump, but they're also just tired of uh, the drama surrounding President Trump and also uh, Joe Biden. And so if this becomes another Trump versus Biden contest, I think that that's actually uh, damaging for the process and for the American people. And so certainly for Republicans, they're looking at a new candidate, uh, whether or not that's Governor DeSantis or someone else. I think there is a large segment of the GOP that's sort of ready to move on from all of the Trump drama. And I think the Democrats are actually in the same position looking at Joe Biden as well. So I think that uh, voters in both camps as we head into the primaries are really going to uh, take these things really significantly into consideration all of the legal drama surrounding Biden and Trump and maybe wanting to support another candidate instead. All right, Jenna Ellis, great to hear your thoughts as always. Thank you so much. Thank you. President Biden pushing health insurers to expand coverage for mental health issues. But the emphasis on mental health is also drawing some controversy. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. The White House says millions of Americans are paying high fees for out-of-network mental health services they need. And President Biden says that needs to change. Right now, for millions of Americans, mental health care and treatment for substance abuse is out of reach. Talk to young people. They'll tell you there's a serious youth mental health crisis happening right now in this country. As part of his mental health push, the administration on Tuesday proposed a new federal rule that would require insurance companies to provide the same benefits for both physical and mental health care. And President Biden says the two are the same. I don't know what the difference between breaking your arm and having a mental breakdown is. It's health. There's no distinction. 
The National Institute of Mental Health says more than one in five adults in the U.S. or 58 million people experience mental health illness. But such a massive topic could also get controversial when it comes to how the administration defines mental health care. For example, a senior health official in the Biden administration said this last month. Gender affirming care is health care. Gender-affirming care is mental health care, and gender-affirming care is literally suicide prevention care. And such narratives are prompting pushback from some conservatives against the administration's mental health push. The group Moms for Liberty responded to President Biden's latest announcement by saying mental health care is health care, and that's why it has no place in public schools. Reporting from the White House, at Howe, NTD News. Emmett Till and his mother will get a new national monument in their honor after President Biden signed a proclamation earlier today. The move to create it falls on what would have been Till's 82nd birthday. The 14-year-old's brutal murder in 1955 is credited with helping spur the civil rights movement. So is his mother's decision to hold an open casket funeral, showing the world her son's mangled body. The monuments are planned for Till's home state of Illinois and in Mississippi, where he was murdered. And another battle on Capitol Hill appears to be taking shape, this time over where your tax dollars should and should not be spent. Some of the more fiscally conservative Republicans are putting pressure on members of their own party. NTD's congressional correspondent, Melina Weiskup, has the story. A group of Freedom Caucus members are putting pressure on their Republican colleagues to vote for spending cuts much steeper than what is allowed through the Biden-McCarthy debt ceiling deal. Today at a press conference, they specifically called out some Senate and House Republicans for being okay with spending more money, especially with regards to emergency spending and Ukraine aid. Now, the overall goal here is to put pressure on Speaker McCarthy to stick to a deal that he made with Freedom Caucus members back in January to return government funding back to pre-COVID levels, and this group is making clear that they're not going to back down. On average, we spend oh, about $125 billion more every month than we bring in in revenue. We're reminding our leadership, you, you need the votes. Most of the American people won't even miss if the government is shut down temporarily. They want to keep spending under $1.47 trillion. So to try to make sure this happened, they asked leadership to see all 12 appropriations bills. That is one for every area of government where that money is spent. I asked what specifically they'll be looking at. When you ask taxpayers to pay for abortion, when you ask taxpayers to pay for trans transgender reassignment surgeries and or treatments. And even if they are able to get their way in the House, this still creates a conflict with Senate Democrats. And the Senate right now is already working within spending caps much higher than where the House is working at. So with both chambers leaving for their August recess next week, this really sets up a stressful September with just a few short weeks to take care of all of this. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Wisecup, NTD News. Coming up, a potential UPS strike may have been averted. The company and the Teamsters Union reach a tentative deal. And hundreds of internal documents from the Chinese Communist Party leaked online. They detail the military ambitions in the regime's five-year plan. We'll bring you the details after the break.
UPS and the Teamsters Union have reached a tentative deal on a new contract. The agreement still needs to be ratified by about 340,000 Teamsters at UPS. A no vote could still trigger a strike, but it would then take place in late August. For further analysis of the agreement, NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with union expert Mark Mix, president of the National Right to Work Committee. So, Mark, have UPS workers been treated unfairly? I mean, what's the dynamic here? Yeah, well, UPS drivers are making on average, average $95,000 a year. And the Teamsters Central State Pension Fund for retirees and everybody else the, the Teamsters represent just got $36.4 billion from the taxpayers to support their pension program to make sure that all benefits can be paid through 2051. That's another story that's kind of lost in this whole debate about UPS going on strike. I think that there's workers out there that think they're getting a good deal. I mean, you know, they've already settled on air conditioning in the trucks and fans in the trucks that are a little bit older. I mean, there may be some that's saying it's unfair. Sean O'Brien talks about poverty wages for these people. And so the rhetoric out there indicates that, you know, this is a really terrible place to work and UPS is not treating them well. But I think there are folks out there that like their job, they like their pay. And there are conditions, obviously, that workers are going to argue against. That happens in every business, and particularly one this size with 340,000 employees. There's going to be someone out there that's not happy, I suspect. You know, the impact, the impact on these workers, and let's look at it from a Teamster driver perspective. If you go out on strike, you get what's called strike pay. But you're going to make about $1,400 less per week for every week that you're out in your paycheck. The strike pay is not going to make up for the full salary. So if you stay out for 15 working days, you're losing three weeks of pay, which is about $4,000. For part-timers, they're going to lose somewhere north of about $200 a week in pay if they go out on strike because the strike benefits won't compensate them fully. And so there's a real financial risk for these employees, and possibly everything they gain at the bargaining table may be lost because they've been off the job for three weeks. I suspect there's a lot of Teamster drivers that are concerned about that. And we knew from the last strike, we represented literally hundreds of employees, helped hundreds of employees that wanted to cross the picket line and go to work because they needed to feed their families. And Mark, what would have been the impact of a strike? Yeah, well, first of all, some people that study this very, very specifically said that a 10-day strike would cost UPS about $7 billion. Um, from an economic standpoint, from a customer standpoint, a customer-facing standpoint, UPS has about 24 to 25% of the entire market share of the partial business. So they're delivering anywhere from 18 million to 22 million packages a day. Now, obviously, there's FedEx, there's U the United Postal Service, there's uh, Amazon that provide these same kind of services. But really, UPS is the big player in this business. So there's a risk for UPS and market share. I mean, FedEx has already indicated that customers can come to them. They put out some notices about a month ago saying, if you're interested in making sure you got continuity, let us know now so we can set up the structure that allows you to do that. I mean, it seems like Teamsters have tremendous leverage here. They absolutely do. And, and that's a great point, Don. I think that what's happened is the environment has encouraged this type of leverage, this kind of force. I mean, you know, they've got an additional incentive. Uh, they've asked the president to stay out of it, President Biden to stay out of it, just like they asked President Clinton back in 1997 to stay out of it. But I think there's whispering from the White House about, you know, how can we help get this done? Because they consider this summer to be a, a really important year for organized labor. We've got a UAW strike that's looking at us in, in September. 
The UAW contract with the three automakers up there expires on September 14th. We've got yellow freight lines that just barely surviving financially where a strike was prevented that was supposed to start yesterday morning, but they got a little bit of reprieve. So there's lots of action in, on this front. Wow, it seems like a lot of hurdles coming for the economy. But thank you so much for your insight today, Mark. Appreciate it, Don. Thanks for the opportunity. Details of the Chinese Communist Party's military ambitions made public. Project Veritas today leaked hundreds of documents on the CCP's five-year plan. Undercover journalism group Project Veritas on Tuesday said it has acquired over 400 documents on the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP's current five-year plan. It covers the CCP's goals for its state-owned enterprises in bioengineering, military, technology, and other areas. We've reviewed materials that focus on advanced technology, including biotech, nuclear, and AI some having military applications. They also cover high-end manufacturing, including agricultural and medical equipment, as well as the development of materials and chemicals. Project Veritas says the documents detail projects approved by the CCP in October of 2020, the year before its current five-year plan began. They also say the programs involve individuals working with public universities and private companies in the U.S., the U.K., Israel, Canada, Australia, and other countries. These CCP documents in their original format have been uploaded to our website. We're making these documents available to the public in an effort to be fully transparent regarding the CCP's global agenda. We look forward to collaboration with journalists across the world and subject matter experts to further explore the implications of these business plans and the individuals involved. Nearly 8 gigabytes of the leaked data is available for download on the Project Veritas website. The journalism group says they are making it public because the information is vital to understanding the plans and potential threats of the CCP. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Following weeks of absence and spiraling speculation, China's foreign minister, Qin Gang, was suddenly removed from his post. Qin has been a close aide to Chinese leader Xi Jinping. He was only appointed foreign minister last December after serving as China's ambassador to the U.S. He has been missing from the political scene since June 25th when he hosted officials from Sri Lanka, Vietnam and Russia in Beijing. Before that, he also met with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Chin's predecessor, Wang Yi, will take his old post back. Some see Chin's removal as a sign of soured relations with China's top leadership. China's foreign ministry didn't comment on the reason behind the switch. The state media is mum and comments are censored on Chinese social media. And coming up, the Department of Education is launching an investigation into Harvard University's policy on legacy admissions. That's after civil rights groups filed a complaint earlier this month. Do traditional values still hold a place in the hearts of America's youth? We hear from students at an event held by Young America's Foundation after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A federal judge temporarily halts a key part of President Biden's asylum policy. This could lead to an uptick in illegal immigrants crossing the southern border. Biden has two weeks to appeal. If he doesn't, more people would be eligible for asylum. 
House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says an impeachment inquiry into President Biden would let Congress properly investigate the corruption allegations. Project Veritas leaks hundreds of documents detailing the Chinese Communist Party's current five-year plan. They give an inside look into the regime's ambitions in bioengineering and military technology. The Department of Education is launching an investigation into Harvard University's policy on legacy admissions. This is the Biden administration's latest move after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions last month. The Education Department's Office for Civil Rights today opened the investigation into Harvard's use of donor and legacy preferences in admissions. The department will determine whether such admissions policies discriminate on the basis of race. After the Supreme Court decision last month, several groups filed a federal complaint requesting an investigation into Harvard's legacy and donor admissions. Harvard says it's aware of the investigation and that the school is reviewing its admissions policies in light of the Supreme Court decision. And conservative students are gathering in D.C. What's the state of traditional values with the youth? NTD Sam Wong spoke with students and others at the conference. Here at the Young America's Foundation Conference, students are gathering to discuss conservative ideas while welcoming their favorite speakers to the stage. British theologian Carl Truman told me that he is encouraged to see young people finding their way to honor histories and traditions. So I'm encouraged that at least among some sectors of young people, there seems to be a realization of the importance of history and a desire to recapture something of that. Former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker said that the right to worship keeps traditional values alive and it will continue to inspire younger generations for years to come. Well, I mean, I think traditional values in the sense of God and country, you know, uh, my God happens to be uh, related to Jesus Christ, but it could be uh, anyone that someone wants to worship here. And I think those sort of things we're certainly talking about to inspire the next generation on. So does traditionalism still hold sway in the hearts of American youth? I spoke to some young people on the ground, and here's what they told me. I don't think it does a whole lot. I think it's dying slowly and steadily. I mean, you look at it nowadays, it's always feelings this, feelings that. It's not really how it was always. Traditionalism and meritocracy, like what Elon Musk has done, if we bring back meritocracy, then given that traditional value, then things will look good. In the face of an ever more polarized nation, how can people come together from both sides of the political spectrum? Here's their answers. Free will reaches across all religions and also free will equals consent. I think just having genuine conversation and being able to listen to one another. Like you can't have the leaders of either parties just bashing each other. It just, it's going to take a lot, but they just need to realize, you know, come together, do what's best for the country. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Sam Wong, NTD News. Speaking of conservative students, David Chan, a 20-year-old political science major at UC Berkeley, is the youngest person to become chairman of the Alameda County Republican Party. He runs the local party and recruits candidates. He's also chair of the California College Republicans. Chan told NTD's David Lamb about his aspirations and why he wants to inspire the next generation of conservatives. So, David Chan, you're the Alameda County Republican Chair. Um, thank you for doing the interview with me today. Of course, and thank you so much for having me, David. Yeah, no problem. So, I wanted to talk to you about how you became the youngest county chair to be in this position, and, you know, how did you get to this uh, point? Well, I think, um, first and foremost, all the credit is to God. 
I mean, being able to have this position, be able to step up, it's nothing more uh, short of a miracle, really. Um, and it's not something that I think any of us could have been able to accomplish, like me and my team on our own do. We're here to revitalize the party, and I think a lot of our Republicans uh, saw that. They saw you know, what I'm trying to bring to the table and the new ideas and um, this ability to kind of be able to revitalize that party, I think is definitely something that you know, we need here in California, especially within the Republican party. Now, so have you faced any opposition during your time while trying to get people to come together? Of course, absolutely. There's there's going to be opposition at every turn that we face. Um, there's going to be opposition internally and especially externally. Um, and I think that, you know, especially for someone that has the current beliefs that I do, that's it really pertains mostly to protecting our constitutional rights and the freedoms that we should be guaranteed as American citizens. That's becoming more and more unpopular, even though 20 years ago, that used to be the most non-controversial stance that you can have. I mean, 20 years ago, the Democrat Party and the Republican Party were virtually the same. Now, being 20 years old, what are people saying to attest to your experience, especially you're still in college? Yes. You know, um, it's definitely, you get a mix. Um, I have a lot of people that are coming out and supporting me because I'm so young and they want to, and they, you know, believe in the same things that I do. It is difficult. Um, you know, I'll show up to an event and people won't know who I am or what I'm doing and I'll try to introduce myself and shake their hand and some, some, sometimes they just won't even give me the light of day until they find out later what I'm involved in and, you know, the different positions. Um, but, you know, that's okay. And it's just all a part of being able to slowly grow and be able to um, just continue to immerse myself um, in what we're doing here. All right, David Chan, Alameda County Chair of the GOP, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for having me. A seven-year-old boy, through his legal representative, is suing a California school district. The lawsuit says the boy's rights were violated when he was disciplined for not complying with masking and testing requirements during the pandemic. The boy is now eight, and the case is still ongoing. Eight-year-old H.N. appears to be a typical young boy who enjoys board games, Nerf guns, baseball, and toy vehicles. The summer camp would be beach baseball, my after-school camp. But the Scotts Valley resident is very mature for his age. It all started in September 2021 when he was seven. At times, he refused to wear a mask in school and did not consent to getting tested for COVID-19 weekly. And for some reason, I had to take the COVID test twice, but I did not, because I did not want to. I have a right to speak my mind. So I did not do it, and then they put me in the office, and they kept me in there and for a week or two, for a week, yeah. His dad then hired a lawyer and filed a lawsuit on his behalf against the school district with the California Superior Court, Santa Cruz County. They are suing for negligence, false imprisonment, violating his civil rights and other charges. I couldn't breathe. I had to chew holes in my mask. I had to go, I had to, before I figured out chewing holes, mm -hmm. hey, can I uh, go get some water? And then I went outside to pull down my mask and actually breathing them. The complaint mentions nine separate incidents in which HN refused to wear a mask. I was just feeling disappointed that, you know, 
They had to keep sending me back to the office, putting me in storage rooms. I wasn't with my classmates. But the school district's defense attorney, Mark Davis, wrote in a letter to the Epic Times saying that HN's refusal to be vaccinated, tested, and to wear a mask created a difficult situation. Davis added, quote, The safety guidelines could have been ignored, but that likely would have increased the overall risk to students and staff and would not have been reasonable under the circumstances. But now the case continues to make its way through the court system. It may head to a trial unless a settlement takes place. And staying on young people's health, a new recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which says anti-obesity drugs are now recommended for children 12 and up who are dealing with the condition, alongside suggesting changes to diet and lifestyle. The change comes in the association's latest update to its guidelines, but it has sparked concern among some medical professionals, in part because the long-term side effects of taking these drugs remains largely unknown. Earlier today, I spoke with Dr. Scott Atlas, a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and a former advisor to the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Dr. Scott Atlas, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. I want to look at weight loss drugs, which are now being recommended to children as young as 12. We as a nation have had to deal with obesity for many years. Why do you think this is happening now? Well, there's a recognition, of course, for many, many years that the U.S. has a, an obesity crisis. I mean, this has been building for decades. We are really what can be called the fattest nation in the developed world. Uh, it's really the number one public health crisis in the U.S. And what happened during the lockdowns and the school closures was that there's an explosion of obesity and eating disorders, by the way, particularly in young people. 52% of college-age American kids had an average weight gain of 28 pounds. There's been an explosion of eating disorders that required hospitalizations in teenagers. So that uh, really is a crisis. And now there's the development of these new drugs uh, that somehow make it uh, a lot easier to lose weight other than the known uh, cures, which are really diet and increasing exercise. So uh, this sort of culture that we have of drugs uh, for medical illness, now there's an opportunity uh, for people to use them. And considering that the U.S. spends more on drugs per capita than, you know, equally high-income nations, what are your concerns about this extra recommendation of, you know, more drugs? Sure. Well, the, there's a problem here in that, <clears throat> you know, these all drugs have side effects. There is no record of long-term safety in these kinds of drugs. That's, that's a serious concern when you're talking about particularly younger people uh, using this kind of drug because, uh, you know, that it's not clear that uh, if you stop using the drug, uh, the obesity doesn't return. Secondly, uh, there are other things we should be doing. Number one, uh, we have a culture that has been glamorizing obesity, frankly, for years. We've seen this in advertising. We've seen this in the fashion industry for around a decade, particularly in the U.S., but also in the U.K., uh, is that uh, out of concerns for political correctness or whatever, we've been afraid to state the truth, and that is the severe health harms from obesity to the point of losing six or seven years of life expectancy beginning at age 40. 
documented in the literature. Uh, I mean, this is really a very serious illness, and it is a lifestyle illness, according to the medical literature. So uh, it's a lot harder for people to do things like diet and use exercise, and this drug comes along, which apparently has significant impact. But the long-term usage uh, is, is very questionable and should be a serious concern for people. But considering the difficulty of changing lifestyle habits and alongside these serious potential side effects, what do you suggest for people who are, who are grappling with this? Well, I, I think the first thing to do is we, we need a shift of our culture to honesty uh, in public health. And that is people need to be shown the facts uh, rather than having it uh, sort of viewed as, oh, it's a social construct that obesity is bad and that we're glamorizing it with our fashion industry, et cetera. We should be very clear that obesity is the number one public health problem. Okay, this worked with cigarette smoking, for instance, where the U.S. had a significant uh, decrease in cigarette usage because it became known how harmful it was. We have to realize and educate people that increasing in obesity is associated with not just diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease, but stroke, multiple different kinds of cancers, even Alzheimer's disease. That's point number one. Information about education is important. And the second thing is we need to have an air of personal responsibility. We have to stop glamorizing obesity and make people understand that it's a good thing to lose weight and it's very bad to be overweight for your personal health. And then third, of course, we need people to realize that drugs have side effects, prescription drugs have side effects, long-term usage is uncertain. And so we have to have sort of a thoughtful, mature look at turning to a prescription drug uh, just because it's a lot easier than doing things like, uh, you know, uh, pushing away uh, decrease uh, foods that we actually would want or decreasing portion size. I mean, all of us who've had a weight problem uh, realize that the best thing we could do is not have to give up all the foods we like. That's the easiest pathway. But the reality is that it's a lot safer to diet and use exercise and it is to turn to a drug with uncertain side effects in long term. Much to think about here. Thank you very much, Dr. Scott Atlas. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Coming up, a near tragedy on the basketball court as a USC player suffers cardiac arrest in practice. We'll have an update on Bronny James, who's the son of LeBron. And Spotify joining other music streaming services with across-the-board price hikes. Are there some ways you can save money? These stories and more after the break. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on a scary situation for LeBron James's family. That's right, Steph. LeBron James' oldest son, Bronny, who's an incoming freshman basketball player at USC, suffered cardiac arrest Monday while practicing and is currently listed in stable condition. A family spokesperson released a statement saying, quote, Medical staff was able to treat Bronny and take him to the hospital. He is now in stable condition and no longer in ICU. We ask for respect and privacy for the James family, and we will update media when there is more information. 
Now, Bronny was a highly recruited player in the 2023 class. ESPN had him ranked as the 20th best prospect. He and his USC teammates were granted an extra 10 days of practice in preparation for an upcoming overseas exhibition tour in Europe. And in NBA news, Boston Celtics guard Jalen Brown signed a record-breaking five-year, $304 million contract extension as the largest in league history. The deal easily tops Nikola Jokic's $276 million agreement and will start in the 2024-25 season. The 26-year-old became eligible for what's called the Supermax extension. He was named the All-NBA's second team this past season as a two-time All-Star average career highs in points, rebounds, and assists. And in NFL news, Saquon Barkley signed an adjusted one-year franchise tag with the New York Giants and is reporting to training camp today. The Giants had originally tagged him with the franchise tags for running backs worth approximately $10.1 million, but Barkley had yet to sign. The new agreement adds roughly $900,000 in incentives. The 26-year-old was the team's first-round pick back in 2018 and has made a pair of Pro Bowls in his five seasons. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, all 30 baseball teams are in action, highlighted by New York's Subway Series between the Mets and Yankees at Yankee Stadium. The Yankees will start Domingo Herman against the Mets, three-time Cy Young winner Justin Verlander. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And next, Spotify, the popular music streaming app, is raising prices for the first time ever in the U.S. Why is this happening and what can you do to save money? NTD's Fake Order explores some options. For the first time ever, Spotify is raising its prices in the U.S. across the board, with increases ranging from 6 to 20 percent. Most people have made the switch to streaming uh, music services, and so they've established habits. So it's a little safer to raise prices because the habits have been formed. Robbie Kelman-Baxter is the author of The Forever Transaction and The Membership Economy. Her own family has a Spotify family account as well as YouTube Premium. She says it would be very hard for even them to cancel at this point. There are additional reasons for the price hikes. Licensing fees are going up. Artists are demanding more. So streaming services are raising prices as well. The services also want to improve themselves, which requires more money. And finally, they want to make more money in general. Spotify increased the price for the first time in 12 years since launching in 2011. And they increased the price by $1 per month which is $12 per year. So I don't see that as a significant ask. Mike Warner is the author of Work Hard, Playlist Hard, as well as an artist with music on Spotify. He says users will get a two-month grace period to decide whether to cancel. There are some ways to save money despite the price increases. If you like up-and-coming music, there are apps like SoundCloud and Bandcamp that uh, are free. The other thing is, you know, we have a family account that's six six accounts for a single price. So if you're in a household with multiple people, you know, considering bundling that together is, is another way to, to save costs. Spotify is just the latest streaming service to raise prices. YouTube Music, Amazon Music, and Apple Music have all hiked their main plans from $9.99 to $10.99 a month over the past year. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And finally, if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.